Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you that you are in our midst. Thank you for this gift of your word. And we pray uh, now that you would speak to each one of us, that we would hear the living word that you have to speak to us now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it's a parable um, directly following on from last week, if you remember the parable of obedience. And it was a very, very simple message last week, which was, if the Lord says something, then do it. Obey. And Jesus had been saying to the um, Pharisees, you know, you heard something from the Lord, but you did not obey. But this parable here, for me, I think contains one of the most poignant and moving verses I know, um, or moments where Jesus is speaking. It's one that almost gets stuck in my throat when I really think about it. And we'll get to that later on. Before we do, um, I want to ask you, have you ever started something with great ambitions and hope, (laughs) only to end up totally messing it up or thoroughly disappointed? I chuckle because not all of those situations are very serious in life. For example, um, hope versus reality. Have you ever tried to uh, copy cake making from the internet? Anyone tried that? Here is the hope. Here is the reality. (laughs) Isn't that great? Don't you love that? Let's do some more. They're too funny. Here's a lovely hedgehog. Here's the hope. Yes, an interesting try. In fact, it's a bit dark there. It looks even more hilarious when you can see it. Okay, here's another one. Thomas. Every little boy's dream birthday cake until mum and dad try and make it. (laughs) Oh, it's great, isn't it? It's great. Um, But maybe there are other situations. Maybe you've seen something on a commercial on the TV and you thought, oh, I want one of those, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. or some kind of Whopper burger or something. And you get there, and let's be honest, it's not quite what you had in mind. Hmm, you go with hope and you're kind of let down by the reality of it all. Or maybe it's DIY. You go to Ikea and you see it there and you go, that that is going to look wonderful. Until you bring it home and you try and make it. That one there genuinely is someone who's made the seat upside down. If you have a look, it takes a while to work out what's happened there. But those legs are definitely going the wrong way. I'm sorry that it's a lady as well. I wish that was a bloke, because I feel that's very uh, sexist. That's how a lady builds an Ikea chair. That's not what I'm saying. Um, Many of you ladies are... are, Yeah, maybe, yeah, she's laughing at her husband's efforts. That's exactly what's happened there. Well said, Dean. You've got us all out of jail. That's great. Yeah. Um, or, Or maybe it's a holiday. You know, those magazines make everywhere look incredible, don't they? Those brochures, until you get there, and it's a very, very different story, isn't it? Venice is a classic one. Oh, just me and my wife on a gondolier, or whatever it is. No, no, millions of people everywhere. And they cost £100 for a five-minute ride. Um, Absolutely. So often, we hope for something, but then it... um, It kind of disappoints. For a moment, when you think, what about the serious things, though? Have you ever had a dream of something 
in life, perhaps a job or a career or a long-term goal or a relationship, which you are full of hope for, only for it to fail, for it to not meet your hopes, a disappointment or a regret. Maybe it's something in your Christian life. Maybe it's how it's kind of gone or how it's going. Maybe you messed up or maybe it all just went wrong. Maybe it never came to pass in the way that you had hoped it would. And this hurts, if I'm honest, if we're honest, Dealing with disappointment and sense of failure um, and uh, things not living up to what we'd hoped is one of the things all of us have to grow in in our discipleship um, because it's not easy. I want to suggest to you this morning, we know God cannot fail, right? We know he, his purposes are always fulfilled. But as we read scripture, we realise that this perfect God actually makes himself vulnerable to the accusation of failure when he enters into a relationship with messy humanity like you and me. He gives us total free will. He refuses to force us to follow him. Instead, he nurtures us, he encourages us, he disciplines us, he leads us, he guides us. He coaxes us along. Come on, you can do this. But so often we get it wrong. And so often we stuff it up and make mistakes and fall short of becoming all that we're capable of being. And as you read the Bible and you see the big picture, you almost say it looks like God's hopes and dreams for humanity fail time and time again. He hopes we might love and bless and build up. And instead we hate and we curse and we tear down. And even though God knew this was going to happen, He still, when he comes to us, interacts with us in his divine grace, full of hope, full of promise, full of what our future can be, full of love and compassion towards us and belief that we can flourish. He sees who we are able to be. Today's parable begins with a metaphor of this hope that God has in us. It speaks of a man planting a vineyard full of hope and expectation that's going to bring him wonderful fruit. But to understand it fully, we need to skip right back to Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Lots of Jesus' parables have these sort of echoes of Old Testament passages. Lots of what's going on in Scripture makes sense when you unpack other bits of Scripture. And this is one of them. 750 years before, the prophet Isaiah had written these words. And let me read them to you. Just hear this. It's called the Song of the Vineyard. And it's a song of immense hope that God had in his people that failed. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. And he dug it up, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines, and he built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, and it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, a people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, it says, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. 
And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness. But he heard cries of distress. It's an extraordinarily heartbreaking and moving picture, isn't it, of how God's people have been those he so delighted in and looked on with such hope, looking for the good fruit of justice and righteousness and saw only bloodshed and distress. And so as we heard last week, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. The chief uh, priests and the Pharisees are gathered and he's being questioned in the temple courts at this point on his authority. And he tells them they've missed out, they're missing out on the kingdom because they've not been obedient to the Lord. And then he says, now listen to another parable. Listen to one about a vineyard. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. And listen, he put a wall around it. And he dug a wine press. And he built a watchtower. Can you hear the exact echoes of the Isaiah passage I just read? It's exactly the same almost. Jesus knows that the Pharisees would have known this passage, um, this song of judgment on Israel. Um, and they must have been thinking, oh no, here we go again. This didn't go well last time for us. Um, more vineyard stuff. But as it starts, can you hear the hope that's in this from the vineyard owner? The wall around it, the tower to protect it, keep it safe. I love it. The wine press already dug before he's grown any grapes. Let's get the wine press dug. This is going to be amazing. I love that little bit. He's ready for it all to come and be fruitful and turn into delicious wine. But in Jesus' version, he now changes the image slightly and he says, well, the owner entrusts this vineyard to some tenants and he allows them to enjoy this beautiful vineyard um, at a really good rent, that when the time comes, they will have all that they need and more, and then they will give back to the owner his part and his portion and bring delight to the owner as well for him to enjoy. And so we read, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. He acts in hope and expectation. And this is how God has treated his people throughout Scripture. He acts in hope and expectation. He lavishes his love on them. He shows them his ways, reveals his heart to them, and then he waits in expectation and hope that we will bear good fruit. But as we heard in the Isaiah passage, even with all of God's blessings, people did not produce the good fruit of peace, but of selfishness, greed, and violence. And here in Jesus' version of this parable, He specifically focuses here on the religious leaders, the tenants themselves, who've been entrusted to care for the people so that they may produce fruit. But when the owners arrive, it's the tenants, when the servants arrive, it's the tenants tasked with caring for the vineyard that seize the servants. They beat one, they kill another, and they stone to death a third. All the owners' dreams and hopes for that vineyard meant nothing to them. They wanted it for themselves, so they violently killed anyone the owner sent them, and he sent more than the first. Again and again, he kept sending his servants, and they treated them the same way. And there's no doubt here that Jesus is speaking of the prophets, and that he sent the ones he sent over and over again to call people back to the fruit of God's kingdom, to call people back to justice and compassion and peace and faith and obedience 
But time and time again, Israel's leaders, both political and religious, ignored, despised and killed the prophets of, jo- of God. John the Baptist, only a few chapters earlier we read, has been killed. The last of the great Old Testament prophets, if you like. No doubt the religious leaders, the political leaders, didn't like to be reminded that they were only tenants. That this world actually belonged to God. That he's looking for them not, and the people not just to live for themselves, but to live for others and to live for the Lord. Tending this world not just for their own exploitation and power, but for his delight too, to bring justice and peace. They loved the blessings of the vineyard, but boy, oh boy, they didn't like the call to give back to the owner. But this isn't just them, is it? This is you and I as well. This isn't, oh, oh yeah, naughty them. You see, we're all tenants of God's world, aren't we? But so often we act like we're owners, don't we? It's mine. It's mine. So often we love the blessings of the Lord, but we act like they're ours to hoard. We love the joy and the hope and the blessing of being in relationship with him, but we don't like the cost of serving or giving of time or money or resources. In fact, in our wider world today, we've become so focused on this personal accumulation thing that we truly believe the stuff we have, our house and our cars, is actually ours. Legally, that might be the case, but what does Scripture say? It says we brought nothing into the world, we'll take nothing out. And the most amazing verse when it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and every one, it is his. We are tenants in the world, not called to hoard and accumulate, but to bear fruit. Our hoarding and accumulating, our want and our greed and our selfishness has caused such violence and wars and tragedy and injustice. We're even messing up the planet. The very planet that at the beginning God said, would you look after this for me? Adam and Eve, the very first tenants, would you care for it for me? This is my planet and I'll let you look after it. Well, somehow that's ended up bottom of our list. That doesn't matter. It does. It does. Just like in the parable, we have so often rejected God's ways, mistreated his messengers and rendered to him not the fruit that he wanted to delight in. But now comes the verse that I think is most moving. It's a verse that sticks in my throat, if I'm honest. Because at this point in the parable, Jesus says that having had all his servants killed and beaten, the owner of the vineyard finally decides to make a huge decision. And it's huge. He looks at his beloved boy and he decides to send his son. Last of all, he sent his son to them, verse 37. And listen to this. They will respect my son. They will respect my son, he said. Surely they will look after my boy if I send him. Surely they'll treat him well. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Jesus, the beloved son of the father, is standing there in those temple grounds telling this parable on the week before he is arrested and beaten and taken outside of the city and nailed to a brutal cross and killed. Surely, the father says, they will treat my boy well. And yet we did that to him. And yet we did that to him. 
We gazed on the beauty of heaven. We heard the very words of life from the very word of life himself. We let him heal us, feed us, teach us and love us. And then all we could do was think of our own gain. And so we spat on him and mocked him and stripped him and murdered him. And when we truly understand this, this is one of the most heartbreaking and humbling things any human can actually realise. This happened in history. This happened. And so Jesus says, well, what's the answer? What's the owner to do? And the Pharisees say he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He will rent the vineyard to, another, to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at harvest time. There's no doubt in their response those responsible must be judged. But as they say the words, they're speaking their own condemnation. They're speaking their own judgment. And it probably hung in the air there as they said it. It really is a terrible thing. The Lord had such hopes for us to bear fruit. And instead, we bore greed and selfishness and violence. He sent his son and we killed him. And I think this is, perhaps, we took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I think this is perhaps the biggest moment in all history where God becomes vulnerable to the accusation of failure. How could he let this happen? How didn't he realise he would treat, they would treat his son this way, that we would treat his son this way? And yet the truth is, truth is we know he didn't fail did he? This wasn't an act of failure this was actually the greatest act of love for a selfish, broken violent people that the world has ever known and ever will know rather than being the final act of selfish fruitlessness by mankind, no God turned it on its head and Jesus' death actually became the very thing which would take all of our violence and all of our greed and all of our selfishness and deal with it once and for all. And it would be the very thing which would enable us to bear fruit as God had always intended us to. This seemingly tragic mistake was actually God laying a brand new foundation, a brand new way of having a relationship with God through Jesus. And it would be the only way that would bear the fruit and finally deal with with this problem over and over again that we have, it would deal with it. He'd not given up on humanity when he sent his son. He'd not given up on humanity even when we killed his son. This was not a failure. Jesus says to the Pharisees, the stone, I love it, have you never read in the scriptures? I love it when he does that. Pulls them to account. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. We're not sure how to translate it, but some form of foundational stone, the very most important piece in the whole of salvation, the whole of our relationship with God, the stone that had been rejected has become that piece, the very foundation stone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes, Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people who will produce its fruit. This is what God has done to a world so undeserving. 
to a fruitless world, to a selfish world. He sent his son to die so that through his death and resurrection, a new people could be born. Not a totally different people or a separate people. Not a people defined by a nationality or definitely not Jews or definitely Gentiles. No, no, no. It wasn't any of that anymore. This wasn't a people defined by a political party or good behaviour or status. They're simply a people who would love the Son and build their lives on Him, the cornerstone. A people that would finally go, we get it, and we love your Son, Father God. We love Jesus. And He, and what He has done, is now our cornerstone. And those people, those people who would do that, folks like you and I, are a people, Jesus said, will bear fruit. This time you will bear fruit. People like you and I. How? How on earth can we bear fruit? Are we better in some way than the Pharisees? No, no, we're not actually. We often vilify the Pharisees. Jesus had such strong things to say against them. Are we any better? No. Um, uh, you know, are we more religious than them? No chance. Are we more naturally holy? Well, I'm not. Are you? Let's be honest here. Are we more scholarly, more excellent than them? No. It's all because of Jesus. It's literally all because of our faith in him. Because of what he's done. Paul was more religious and holy and scholarly and moral than any of us here. If he walked in him, a man of such standing in religious terms. And yet he turned around and said, I count the lot as rubbish. It's garbage. Because now I have been found in Jesus, he says. I don't have a righteousness of my own from the law, as if I could get that? No. I've got it through faith in Jesus. It's him. He's the reason, Paul says. You and I have been given the kingdom and we have been declared that we can bear its fruit, not because of our excellence, but because he, Jesus, is working in us and through us. Where the law failed, his spirit succeeds. Where religious determination got nowhere, a renewed heart and faith and living relationship with God begins to flourish. We are a people filled with a hope built on Jesus and that hope built on the cornerstone will not fail. But what can be said, and I'll be quick here, what can be said of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees? As I often read scripture and think, gosh, it's so easy to go black and white, oh, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. It's just... Be so careful when you're reading scripture. Don't always align yourself with, the, with those that are always right. Often, we need to put ourselves in the place of both. By their pronouncements, they said, well, we only deserve a wretched end. It seems that their situation was without hope. God had given up completely on them, but had he? Had he? It may seem that they were beyond reaching, along with the worst of the worst of the worst, but were they? Certainly, if they were to continue to reject God and despise his son, then Jesus makes it clear. It doesn't work that way. Your prideful plans will be crushed, actually. There's no fruit that way. But what if they were to change? To no longer set their hearts against God? No longer seek their own way but his? Does God ever give up on anyone in this life? Does he? Is their end really so hopeless? What about the foul thief on the cross, truly deserving to be there, who called out to Jesus for mercy. Was his end hopeless? What about the centurion at the foot of the cross? Probably involved 
in the killing, right there, who then recognised Jesus' divinity. Was his end hopeless? What about the religious Pharisee? Yes, a Pharisee called Nicodemus, who came in the night to hear the teachings of Jesus and looked after his body after he had died. Was his end hopeless? What about the worst of all Pharisees, called Saul, as we heard, Paul? He persecuted and terrorised and destroyed the followers of Jesus in the early church, but who actually himself became a believer. He threw himself on the forgiveness and the mercy of the cornerstone. Was his end hopeless? No, 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 it wasn't. God hadn't given up on them. He doesn't give up on anyone. With him, anyone can turn to him and everything changes. That moment, a person, no matter who they are and what they've done, throws themselves at the mercy of Jesus and says, Lord, it's about you, not about me. I'm sorry. Be my Lord. Everything changes. Hope floods in and fruit-bearing becomes their way of life. I finish with us just thinking about you and I. What about you and I? We may love Jesus. Do you love Jesus here this morning? Maybe you do. But perhaps when you hear the call of Jesus to bear the fruit of the kingdom, perhaps you shrink a little. Perhaps we had such hopes, we thought we might be better at all that. Perhaps we thought we might have done more. Perhaps we thought things might be different. Perhaps we feel we've not lived up to the hope we had in ourselves, let alone the hope that God has in us. As men, at our men's meeting, the the first Creech men thing we did the other day, we were talking on our table about the words that are spoken over us as young people and as in developing years, how they can stick with us, can't they, from an early age? Someone declares something negative over you, you're a failure or you're a disappointment. Well, that's the voice of the enemy. That's the voice of the one that wants to crush us and crush our hope, make us believe lies about ourselves. You'll never bear any fruit for God, he says. But don't you dare believe it. Don't you dare believe it. Don't you dare believe that. Don't you dare give up on yourself and on your faith and on your walk with God because God has not given up on you. He hasn't given up on any of us. God says, no, you are not a failure. You're not a disappointment. His voice calls out the best in you. He teases out your confidence and your hope and he says, you are part of my fruit-bearing people. That's who I declare you are. You are a fruit bearer, Jesus says. You're in me, you are a fruit bearer. If you follow Jesus, you and I are part of his fruit bearing people because he is our hope. He is our cornerstone. Because of him, we're filled with his spirit. We're declared his masterpieces as I spoke about earlier. We're chosen, made anew in Jesus to do the good things he has planned. To bear the fruit, yes, of justice and peace and love and obedience and faith. Sure, we can get it wrong. Sure, we miss opportunities. Yes, we fail in certain tasks. But in him, we're never a failure. We're a wonderful work in progress. I like that. In him, we're not a failure. We're a work in progress. He keeps working with us. In him, we're never a disappointment. We're a beloved child who he considered worth giving everything for. So we must not be held back as individuals by failures and disappointments. We mustn't be held back 
as a church for going forward. We must go forward positively, filled with hope, knowing that Jesus has lots of work yet to do in us, sure, but lots of fruit that he wants to bear in us and through us. Because he's our cornerstone. We're a people full of hope for today and for the future. Why? Because Jesus came and died and rose again and filled us with his spirit. We're a church filled with hope for the future. Why? Because Jesus came and died and rose again and filled us with his spirit. He has become our cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done. And it is marvellous in our eyes. I'm going to finish there. Can we pray together? Lord, thank you that our hope isn't in ourselves. Thank you that our hope is in you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to make that possible. And knowing that we would not treat your boy well, you still sent him because you wanted to deal with it all once and for all. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Life in all its fullness. Life in relationship with you. A fruit-bearing life. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus is our cornerstone. We thank you that you never gave up hope on us and you still don't. We thank you for this Easter period coming up. And I pray your blessing on anyone here this morning who has sat here now and thought, yeah, I think maybe I thought I was done. Maybe I was a failure. Maybe there was nothing more I could give for the Lord. Lord, speak to them truth this morning. That in you they are fruit bearers. Call out of them the very best that they have. Build us up again, Lord, that we may shine for you and we may bear the fruit that you say in Jesus we can. For we ask it in his name.